I'll begin this morning uh, by reminding of a, of a fairly um, obscure, yet I think incredibly important Old Testament figure. In the book of 1 Samuel, in chapter 20, David and Jonathan, at a time when Jonathan's father, King Saul, was trying to get rid of David, David and Jonathan made a covenant with one another. And so 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 12 to 16 says this. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But it should, should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more so, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, Jonathan made a covenant in the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Jonathan knew um, that as the son of David's sworn enemy, when David eventually would become king and God had already ordained this to happen, Jonathan knew that he and his family would be in grave danger of being put to death. But because of their friendship, David promised, he, he covenanted even, to display the steadfast love of the Lord by not putting to death the house of Jonathan. Of course, reasons, because Jonathan, in worldly standards, would have been the heir to the throne, Saul's throne. But Jonathan, being God and man, understood that God had chosen David. So fast forward the drama then to, to 1 Samuel chapter 24, when David confronted Saul and yet spared his life in the, in the cave. In, in the ensuing conversation between David and Saul, David makes this promise to King Saul. It's 1 Samuel 24, just verses 21 and 22 says this. Saul says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. After this, in the story, um, as the throne, as the kingdom shifted from Saul to David, there was war in the land. There was violence and unrest. Essentially, those who were loyal to David, the new king, they sought out and they destroyed anyone who saw, they saw it as a threat to David's reign, to his kingdom. They wanted to eliminate the possibility that a descendant of Saul would claim the right to the throne and in the future there would be another war. This was common in kingdoms. In the midst of that war, there's a verse that, that almost looks out of place 
And in fact, in some of the English versions, it's actually set apart in parentheses. And it's 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, and it says this, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and they had both died. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So turn out to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to read a chunk of this. At this point in the Old Testament story, it's many years later, and David is now king. God has already covenanted with him that his descendant would sit on the throne of David forever and that his son would be allowed to build God a, a house there on the mountain. And so listen to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And he called him and said, uh, called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is a, still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And the king, uh, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called to Saul's servant and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. As if it had 15 sons and 20 servants, as if it said to the king, according to all that the Lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. He was laying both of his feet. He always ate at the king's table. Turn out to John chapter 12. We are continuing our study of John's gospel we work through this account of Christ's life. Before we read this, I want to point out that this chapter, John chapter 12, has no miraculous sign. It has no even long teaching of Jesus. 
It's really just some narration, a little bit of conversation, and a healthy dose of glory mixed in. This is, after all, the chapter that contains the, the triumphal entry when we think of Palm Sunday. There really are three or four sections of this chapter. Uh, the first couple of sections, verses 1 through 11, that we're going to look at here in a moment, and then verses 12 to 19, they report certain events that honor Jesus, even though it seems that no one truly understood the significance of, of what was really happening in either event at the moment. The third section, verses 20 to 36, brings in some, some Greeks onto the scene, which is actually rare for Jesus to interact with Greeks. And yet, we will see that when we get there in a few weeks, and then as we get through the chapter, that the arrival of these Greeks serves as a sign that, as he would say to his mother at the wedding, that his hour was at hand. And then the final verses of John chapter 12 is both John and then Jesus kind of lamenting the unbelief of the people of Israel. And it's a, it's a meditation with a bunch of Old Testament scripture in there as to why so many of his own people do not believe in him. It's a summary of Jesus' authority and the urgency of, of this moment in redemptive history. And Jesus specifically says in, in verse 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Every paragraph of this chapter builds toward what he will say and do in the coming chapters. What we often call the, the farewell discourse in chapter 13, and it continues all the way through chapter 17. And then after that is the crucifixion and resurrection. What we see today in these opening verses of John chapter 12 are those who see the light and are given a place at the king's table. We also see those who choose to remain in darkness. So let me read this, John chapter 12, just verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charged the money bank, he should help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have me, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only to account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans for Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Help us to understand your word. What would you do if you had a week to live? In reality, it's not a great question. Right? We probably all have thought about something like that at some point. It's really not a great question because for most people, if they really knew that they would only live for one more week, it probably means that they're 
very sick and wouldn't really be able to do much of anything. But this is exactly where we find Jesus at this point in our, in our deep dive look into his life here in John's Gospel. We have now entered into his final week before he goes to the cross. John tells us plainly that in six days before the Passover, he traveled back to, to Bethany where Lazarus was. Now because of the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's some debate as to the timing of all of this. But this meal that we see here is probably a Sabbath meal. Um, for the Jews, the Sabbath was, on, was from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And it's likely that Jesus probably arrived in town uh, Friday late afternoon, early evening, and then they ate this meal together sometime on Saturday, Sabbath meal. But regardless of what day of the week it was, the scene so far is pretty much what we would expect, given the circumstances at least. In the previous scene, in the previous, at uh, the end of chapter 11, really all of chapter 11, Right there at the end, Jesus had gone off into the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he would wait there until the Passover. But the Passover was at hand. He was waiting there until the time was just right, until the fullness of time had come, before he would present himself again. And now he has returned to Bethlehem, probably even to the home of Lazarus. But at least Lazarus is there. John specifically mentions that Jesus went to the place where Lazarus was, is how he words it there. In fact, this, this section, um, verses 1 through 11, in this, Lazarus' name is brought up four times. And John reminds us more than once that this is he whom Jesus had raised from the dead, as if anyone would, forgot, would have forgotten, right? It's that same Lazarus, he's saying. He whom Jesus had raised from the dead. But John is making a connection here that we might, we might miss if he wasn't so pointed in making it for us. Where, where is the place where Lazarus was? Well, where is the place where Lazarus was? Well, I know the place where Lazarus wasn't. He wasn't in a tomb surrounded by death and decomposition. He wasn't in a grave with his hand and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped in a cloth. But that, that is where Jesus is headed. John is making this connection for us. The one who cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, was about to call out to his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The one who had authority over death soon quote Psalm 22 my God, my God why have you forsaken me? The one who assured Mary and Martha that Lazarus' illness would not lead to death but to glory would himself soon die that he might be glorified. But first Jesus goes to the place where Lazarus was home, surrounded by friends and family and so it says they gave a dinner for him there. That's how this chapter opens, with worship and devotion. Worship and devotion. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, 
whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. We should begin here by making just a just a couple more connections. The first is this: this dinner, he says, is for Jesus. This is an overt, this is a, a straightforward celebration of his victory over sin and death, specifically Lazarus's death. And his friends are eager to feast with the one who had given them hope, the one who had given them joy, with the one who had given life. Previously, they had gathered together to mourn Lazarus. Now they were here to celebrate Jesus. Jesus had even taught, as we think through the scene here, Jesus had even taught back in Matthew chapter 9, Verses 14 and 15, the disciples of John, John the Baptist, they came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Let any guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. The disciples, the, the followers of Jesus Christ, would have plenty of time to fast when their deliverer would be taken away from them. There would be plenty of time to mourn while they would face opposition and persecution. And there will come a time when they would when they would face torture and mocking and flogging, and as the writer of Hebrews would say, chains and imprisonment, when they will face destitution and affliction and mistreatment. Christians will have plenty of time and plenty of reason to fast and pray, but now he says the time to feast with the bridegroom. We should also remember that his disciples, the twelve specifically, they had understood. They knew that for them to go to Bethany the first time, or at least back in chapter 11, the most recent time, it was life-threatening. They had objected to him back in chapter 11, verse 8. Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to, to, to stone you. You're going here again. Even after he explained that all of this was for the glory of God, Thomas, Thomas still saw the trip as dangerous. He was willing to go, but he saw the danger. Verse 16, let us go, let us also go that we may die with him. They understood the danger of that trip. And even though John here in this return trip, he doesn't give us any more insight into the state of mind of the disciples, Matthew tells us. Listen to Matthew's account of this. This is from Matthew chapter 26. These verses are just before this same event happens. Matthew 26, he says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people uh, gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And from there, Matthew goes on to tell this exact same story. Jesus had been teaching his disciples. He had been telling them plainly about his upcoming crucifixion. He had been telling them plainly that he was going to be killed in a gruesome way. There was political unrest in the air. Jesus is a wanted man. 
the Jewish leadership are having, they're having secret meetings in which they plotted ways to kidnap and kill him. Yet, customarily, the people of Israel, if you put yourself in their shoes for a moment, as they ascended the mountain toward Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, the end of chapter 11 tells us that many are already there. But as they would ascend that mountain toward Jerusalem, they would sing from the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent. They're specifically Psalms 120 to 134. So imagine the disciples, while Jesus is teaching them about his crucifixion, while he's talking to them about his death, imagine a group of guys singing Psalm 130 during these days. Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the Lord for my pleas of, for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. They had been scared to death to go back to this region. And now it's Passover. They have seen the resurrection of Lazarus. And as they ascend the mountain, they're singing these songs, hoping in the Lord that he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. There is danger and death in the air, but now is the time to feast. Because the bridegroom is here. This dinner, chapter 12, it's actually a precursor to the Last Supper. It's the second to the Last Supper. This is a picture of a feast yet to come. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, mentions this. John, giving a vision, says that I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. The prophet Isaiah gives us another, another picture of this marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah writes in Isaiah chapter 25, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
This is a time of, of feasting and celebration because he has removed that veil that had been over Lazarus. He has swallowed up death. He has wiped away the tears from their faces, from Martha's face, from Mary's face. So they gave a dinner for him there. And they rejoiced that he was with them. Not only was this dinner for him, John points out there, but do you also see the words Martha served? This dinner was for him and Martha served. This is significant because earlier in uh, his ministry, in Jesus' ministry, when she served, Luke tells us that she was distracted. And she was complaining to Jesus because Mary, her sister, wasn't helping her. But now she just simply serves. Now she's a changed woman. Once she complained to Christ, but now she serves. Jesus had come and had delivered her brother from death, but from the grave. And so she serves. This is Martha doing what Martha does. Yet she does this with a renewed mind. These two words, Martha served. I think this is a good example of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Will of God for Martha in this moment was to serve. She served. And her whole family is there. Lazarus was, was sitting among the disciples, reclining with Christ at the table. But Lazarus isn't the focus of attention. Lazarus isn't the guest of honor at this party. We would think under the circumstances that Lazarus would be the one who would be getting all of the attention. And I'm sure there were conversations. What was it like? But Jesus is the focus. And it's evident that they all knew this, not the least of which was Mary. So let's look at her in verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. If Martha served, is Martha doing what Martha does? This is Mary doing what Mary does. She's at the feet of Christ again. Do you remember when Martha was complaining and Mary wasn't helping her? Back in Luke, it was because Mary was at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. That's what she had been doing. Do you remember when she heard that Jesus had arrived for Lazarus's funeral right after his funeral? That we're going to look at in verse 32 of the previous chapter, it says, Now when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She fell at his feet, and here she is again at the feet of her master. Now the other, the other gospel accounts, when you read all of these and put them together, they actually have her anointing his head, possibly even his whole body, that fits with the idea of preparing him for burial, which he mentions down in verse 7. But John focuses on the feet of Christ. 
because he wants us to see how devoted Mary is. This is Mary's spiritual service of worship. And what she does here is highly symbolic. So a couple of observations here. First is this. This is a lot for the English Standard Version says a pound probably was a little less than a pound, maybe three quarters of a pound. That's still a lot of perfume. Um, the aroma filled the house, it says. It probably lasted for days. And with so much talk about death, the idea that she was preparing his body for burial, it certainly didn't escape Jesus. He brings it up in verse 7. And she may have understood some of that as well, even if she didn't fully understand what she was doing. So not only is this a lot of perfume, but the second observation that we can make here is that he says that it is expensive, and then he says that it is pure nard. Well, the nard plant actually grows in the mountains of northern India. So this is very expensive imported perfume. Judas tells us that it was worth 300 denarii. That means it was worth something like a year's wages. This was a financial sacrifice for Mary. A year of her salary she pours out on Jesus' feet. The third observation says that she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. In chapter 13 of the Last Supper, Jesus will wash the feet of his disciples. He, he will serve them humbly and selflessly. That's similar to what she's doing here. There, he washes their feet. Here, she anoints his feet. She's anointing the feet of her king with what she's doing. But then she says that she wipes uh, his feet with her hair. This is foreign to us, but suffice it to say this, she's now linked to Jesus. She smells like him. He smells like her. The entire house is filled with the fragrant aroma of Christ. Mary smells like Jesus. Paul described his ministry like this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 14 to 17, Paul, describing his own preaching ministry, says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For well, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Christ's people are to have the, the fragrant aroma of Christ. They're to smell like Christ. That's what she's doing. She is linked with Christ. And as a literalist to this, she literally smells like him. This aroma lasted for a long time. We can assume it lasted through his burial. But she smells like the Christ 
Christ's people are to have that fragrant aroma that Paul speaks of, of Christ. And, and one other thing here, she's not the only one treating him like royalty. But she is doing that probably more than anybody else there. She is saying, without saying a word, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But instead of having branches and palm trees and receive the next couple of verses, she's wiping up the ointment on his feet with her hair. She is worshiping the king of Israel. This is true devotion. Herman Ritterboss, in his commentary on this, I'm going to read this paragraph. I thought it was really good. He said this. However, all of this may have transpired, the scene is that the evangelist depicts is unmistakable. Never did the Son of God dwell more gloriously among humans than at that last banquet. And nowhere else was the response to their faith and love to his presence more vivid and eloquent. Mary's action expresses what she did not have the words to voice, but it filled the whole house with the fragrance of her love, and as such, it would continue to spread through the preaching of the gospel in the whole world. John doesn't tell us that she was weeping, but Matthew does. She was anointing his feet, also with her tears. This was her spiritual worship. She was devoted and loved her king. But not everybody believes this. Not everybody believes this about Jesus. And so we are introduced for the second time in John's gospel at this point to Judas Iscariot and his misplaced devotion. This is his misplaced devotion. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was about to betray him. So why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bank, he used to help himself for what was put in. John has uh, told us about Judas one other time. In fact, back in chapter 6, verses 70 and 71, I want to read those verses too. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And John says... He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. You get the feeling when you read those verses that John doesn't think too highly of Judas. He mentions both times that even though he was a disciple of Jesus, he's going to betray him. He says that both, in both places. And as Judas says what he says here, and John introduces him, Kind of acts as a, almost a, an anti-narration. He's distorting the truth of what's actually happening, Judas is. But he's not speaking in anger or frustration. He's just simply rebuking Mary for her wastefulness. But in reality, what he's really doing is rebuking Jesus himself. He's rebuking the just anointed king for accepting this offer. Judas quickly calculates the value of what he is seeing happen. And he throws out the devotion of this servant of the king. And he thinks to himself, what a stupid thing to do. What a stupid thing to do. But John clearly points out that he, he 
doesn't do this because he shares Jesus' concern for the poor. This is just what we could call a verbal slate of hand. He doesn't care about the poor. He's been stealing from the ministry. Judas isn't devoted to the king. Judas isn't devoted to the ministry of good works toward the poor. Judas is devoted to himself. But his comments here, they bring up an important question. Should she have done this? Was, was Mary right to bestow this honor on Jesus? So far, Jesus hasn't said anything. A second question is kind of like that. Was she wrong to offer such, a, such an extravagant gift to Jesus when there, when there are others who could have genuinely benefited had she sold it and given the money to the poor? They would have truly benefited from that. Regardless of Judas' motives for saying Jesus answers these questions by speaking of what I would call imminent devotion. Imminent devotion. Look at what he says in verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. I've already talked about, kind of talked about what I mean about imminent devotion. Jesus is here. He's headed for the cross. And but when the bridegroom is with you, you feast and celebrate with him, right? But Jesus starts answering these questions, and, and he answers Judas's objections by defending Mary. Leave her alone, he says. Probably, even though Judas is clearly the bad guy here, probably others are also shocked at Mary's actions and are wondering if what she had done was a good thing. And Jesus breaks in with a, if Mary's actions were shocking, and they were, Jesus steps in and finally speaks here with an equally shocking response, especially for this, this festive occasion, especially for the, the theme of the party's life. Literally, he says, leave her alone. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. What? No doubt, I, I have no doubt that she did this unwittingly. She kept this unwittingly. It's pretty clear that no one understands that Jesus is about to die. They understand the danger. They don't understand the imminence of his death. But like Caiaphas' prophecy back in chapter 11, Mary is being, she's being prophetic. She is showing her true sacrificial devotion to Christ by pouring out this expensive ointment, by washing his feet with it, by wiping up his feet with her hair. She's, she's willing to spend and be spent. She's willing and eager to be poured out for her Savior, no matter what the people around her thought or said. She's preparing his body for an imminent death. And then in verse 8, Jesus affirms her right in offering such an extravagant gift. Now, under normal circumstances, Judas may have had a point. But these are not normal circumstances. And Judas had ulterior motives. If Mary were ever to show the depths of her devotion, the time was now while he was with her at this Second to last supper. This is Jesus. 
This is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity accepting worship from one of his disciples, one of his true followers, while at the same time gently rebuking one who is not a true disciple. Judas. Jesus is accepting her worship, and he is telling Judas, you leave her alone. She's worshiping your Savior. Who Jesus is demands our worship. He demands our devotion. Demands true devotion. He demands us willing to spend and be spent on him. Now, I just want to probably should say verse, verse 8 isn't a commentary on photography. He's simply stating a fact. He's simply stating a commonly held belief. You can take care of the poor tomorrow, but today, today you have me. In fact, the me is emphasized in that verse. Me you will not always have. This scene is why John chapter 12 is a, is a transition between two, the two sections of John's gospel, between the, the book of signs in the first section and the book of glory here beginning in chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples are, are enjoying a feast with Lazarus who once was dead but now is alive and Mary is worshiping as she probably unknowingly preparing him to be glorified. Preparing him for burial. But that death doesn't lead to death either. That death leads to glory. This is imminent devotion. As Christians, our commitment to the poor, as necessary as that is, our commitment to good works, to good deeds, that's a, that's a subset. It, it's a secondary factor to our devotion to our King. This is why, for example, as a church, we won't be forsaking meeting together to go out on a Sunday morning and serve the poor, as churches sometimes do. Our primary devotion is to our King. We give to the poor because they're in need. We must do that. The Bible is full of commands. We give to the poor because they're in need, but we give to our King because we are in need. We worship our King because we are in need. We pour ourselves out because we are in need. It's only by means of our pouring out of our devotion to Christ that we can rightly see ourselves as servants of Christ, bond servants of Christ, even slaves of Christ, not as fellow royalty. Do you see, do you see that Judas thought that he deserved the perfume? Do you see that? He, he, at least he thought he deserved the value of the perfume. He would steal it. Didn't really let anybody else know, although clearly John knew about it later. But he thought he deserved that perfume. And so he made up an excuse as to why that money should really be going to me. I'll take the money back. Judas thought that he was royal. He thought that he should be treated like a king, and so he helped himself to the money back. But it's only when we pour out our devotion to Christ that we can rightly see ourselves as slaves of Christ and not as. It's not, not in anything we have done. If we are a royal priesthood, Peter says that we are, 
It's because he has made us that. Judas was trying to make himself us. So he stole from the money. Christ here, however, accepts her worship because he is worthy. He's worthy of that. At best, we are Mephibosheth at this feast. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And David's better son, the heir to David's throne, says to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, You shall eat at my table always. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage and supper of the Lamb. At best, we are Mephibosheth. Seeing ourselves in any other way is a threat to our devotion. And here's the threat, just real briefly, verses 9, 10, and 11. The large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there that came, not only in account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. These few verses, they bring this feast in, in Bethany right up to the time of the triumphal entry the next day, verse 12 says. And, and they show us the reaction of the crowds to Jesus, especially in light of Lazarus' resurrection, that final sign. Many of the Jews, it says, were going away. They were changing their devotion. The greatest fear of the Sanhedrin, the greatest fear of the Jewish leadership was beginning to come true. Do you remember their great fear? It's verse 48 of chapter 11. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come away and take both our place and our nation. And so not only does Jesus need to die, they think, but now Lazarus needs to die as well. He must be stopped. And the world will not be content. You need to understand this. The world will not be content with stopping him. It will threaten your devotion as well. We see this play out with Stephen. We see it play out with the persecutions in Jerusalem as the church is scattered. We see it played out with the death of James. We see the dangers that Paul was often in. And history tells us that he was eventually put to death. With the rest, except for probably John, who was alive. Throughout history, we've seen this. Evil men who tried to stop the spread of the gospel since the days of Christ. We're seeing increased opposition and threats to your devotion. But take heart, because Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Take heart. Because there's a better supper to come. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this, we see them throw a feast for Jesus because he had had victory over Lazarus' death. One man called from the grave. Yeah, Lord.
mysteries is just a little picture of what's to come. That resurrection is just a little picture of what is to come. So Father, I pray that you would serve like Marcus served with a renewed mind, that we would worship like Mary worships, that our devotion to you would be poured out as hers was, that we would be the aroma of Christ as we go into the world preaching the good news from life to life, from death to death, that we would be the aroma of Jesus Christ, knowing that we will always be the King's name. We pray these things in Jesus' name.